It's Friday, July 18th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Sounds like you don't want to go over this information with me. I mean, did you not want me to go over that information? Was it the tone of my voice or my explicit statement that I don't want to go over the information? Okay, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out here what it is about Comcast service that you're not liking. Um, could it be that I have to pay $120 a month for Golf Channel 2? Could it be that I get C-SPAN 3 but no C-SPAN? Therefore, I'm made to watch Senate subcommittees without watching the actual Senate committee? Could it be this customer service guy who won't let a customer consciously de-customer? We just want to find out what it is that's causing a customer that's been with us for a long time to leave. If you can't tell, I am playing customer karaoke with the recording of that Comcast rep who wouldn't let Ryan Block cancel his service. Hey man, if I went to a bowling alley, let's say I bowl two games, and I don't want to bowl a third game, what if the guy behind the counter started berating me that I have to keep bowling? So all I'm demanding here is bowling alley level of decorum. Clearly the service was working great for you. You weren't having any problems. I could think of one big problem, and he just unilaterally began acting out Monty Python's argument sketch during this call. Why is that? Listen, if you must know, I have a month to live. I've got a month to live, and I vowed that I'd use that month to get through Thomas Piketty's capital, and I can't watch any cable television. Is that a good enough answer? You know what? It's disconnected. Have a wonderful day. So I was listening to the report on how bad Comcast is, and the reporter said, of course, not all companies are that terrible. And I said to myself, well, she's going to say Zappos now. And then she said, at the Las Vegas headquarters of Zappos.com. How great is it that there are like, what, 20,000 companies in America? And when someone mentions, well, there's one good company with customer service, we all think of, oh, yeah, we know the one good company with customer service. Yeah, we were right. Anyway, in the show today, penguins, they're cute, they're plentiful, and they can be counted from outer space. And in the spiel, a great accounting of the downed plane in Ukraine. Speaking of which, let's start the show by considering how this international crisis is playing out in the mind of one man, Vladimir Putin. As of this taping, we don't know for sure who shot down Malaysian Air Flight 17 over Ukraine, but it seems likely to have been Russian-aligned rebels fighting in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin has not explicitly denied this, but he and Russian officials are pointing the finger at Ukraine for, in their framing of the situation, fomenting unrest, for punishing Russian separatists, and also for not shutting down airspace in a region where aircraft have been getting shot down. Well, joining me now is Anne Applebaum, columnist for The Washington Post and Slate. Her book, Gulag, a history, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 2004. Thanks for taking the time to join me, Anne. Thanks. Is Vladimir Putin in damage control right now? He's in damage control, but he's actually, more interestingly, at a very interesting turning point in his invasion of Ukraine. Up until now, he's been able to massage what he's doing to pretend that this isn't really an invasion, it's some kind of separatist movement, and so on. With the downing of this plane, a lot of things are about to become very clear. You know, it's about to become very clear who's running Donetsk, this, this region of eastern Ukraine uh, where the plane went down. It's about to be absolutely made clear to the world that it is Russians in charge, and not only that, it's Russian former KGB and former military intelligence officers who are in charge because they're the ones doing the speaking. 
it's about to become clear that the chaos that was created deliberately by the Russians and the denigration of the state and the delegitimization of the Ukrainian government were what allowed this to happen, and that that was a deliberate policy on the part of the Russians and has been for some months. Putin is about to be confronted with suddenly everybody realizes what his policy is in this area and just how dangerous it is. And he's going to have an interesting choice to make. So I'm trying to figure out what his play might be. Can he simply deny reality? Maybe the rest of the world will think that it's him, but he could just continue on with this fiction that it had nothing to do with forces he was supporting. And maybe the Russian public or enough people, enough rebels will buy that so it won't change the situation. He could. Um, you know, that's, that's, what, that's the game they've been playing all along. Um, the, the Russians have been extraordinarily brazen about denying facts and yep. about inventing alternate facts and alternate theories. Russian media has been full of some actually insane theories about why the plane came down. You know, it was a fighter jet from Ukraine that was trying to hit Putin's plane, and that's what happened. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff has been has already been used to, you know, create, cast a sense of, you know, we didn't really know what's happened. We're never really going to know. The truth will not come out. Um, that's already been cast into the story, particularly for the Russian audience. Um, so, yes, it may be possible for him to tough it out at home. It's going to be harder for him to continue to play that game abroad. Tangibly, that could lead to, what, tougher sanctions by the EU? What can really happen if this becomes a moment where the West stands up and says, we won't take this anymore? What I would like to have happen is for you know, the European community as a whole to recognize what Russia is and how dangerous it is to Europe. Because actually the danger that Russia poses is above all to Europe, to the European Union, to its institutions, um, to, you know, to its banking system, to its economy. Um, and to begin to reconstruct European policy in a way that protects Europe against Russia. And by that I mean, you know, the creation of a European energy union, for example, that makes it easier for Europe to bargain with Russia, the development of alternate sources of gas. Um, there's actually beginning to do that already, but, you know, deepening and speeding up that process. I know that Putin draws strength and prestige from such actions as uh, taking Crimea. But has eastern Ukraine been worth it for him? Eastern Ukraine has not gone the way that Putin expected it to go. He seems to have genuinely believed that he would be able to cause in eastern Ukraine a kind of popular uprising against the Kiev government. And he tried to foment such an uprising in several places, including Kharkov and Odessa and, and several other cities. This failed. The question is, has he drawn the conclusion from it? The conclusion that he should draw is that Ukraine is in fact a sovereign state, that Ukrainians feel themselves to be Ukrainian, that they remain loyal to Kiev and they don't want to be part of Russia. Um, whether he has acknowledged that and understands what that means for him and for his policy, um, I don't know. It's certainly true that the invasion of eastern Ukraine has not been popular in Russia in the way that the invasion of Crimea was, not least because it's not working. I mean, it's not successful. I mean, the, the, the installation of a bunch of um, former security officers in Donetsk is not evidence of, um, is not uh, some kind of great Russian triumph in Ukraine. So I guess my last question, we don't know. He's a strong man and digging in his heels seems part of his character. But maybe this is the incident that convinces him it's a failed strategy. Does he have a history with that? Is he a good enough poker player that he has shown that in cases he knows when to fold them? There is one case in which he didn't exactly fold, but he did make some changes. And this was actually, this is a complicated, in the Russian relationship with Poland some years back, the Russians had made very aggressive statements about Polish history and, and 
the role of Poland in the war and so on. And there was a moment when Putin pulled back from that and from some of his from some of his rhetoric. And he actually appeared at a Polish celebration of the start of the war in 1939, which sounds insignificant. But of course, for the Russians, the war didn't start in 1939. They were actually part of the division of Poland in 1939. And for them, the war starts in 1941 when the Germans invaded. But he did make this concession to the Polish memory of history and to the history of Europe a few years back, which gave a lot of people some hope that he was beginning to change his attitudes and his way of thinking, that he wasn't so Soviet. So he could, in theory, do that. It's also true, though, that since then, he's become much stiffer, much harsher, and also much more nervous of staying in power, and thus much less likely to admit mistakes or to change course. So the answer is, he has changed like that in the past, whether he'll do it now, whether he even feels like he can do it now. In the hours since the plane crash happened, he has yet to give any indication that he's going to do that. On the contrary, he's been blaming Ukraine. He's been sticking to the script. So far, he hasn't budged. Ann Applebaum, columnist for The Washington Post and Slate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Their population is increasing. There are now 3.79 million of them. That's over a million more than there were 20 years ago. We know. We took a census. We did a head count. A black, feathered, adorable head count. Because the they in question are penguins. And with me now is the head satellite penguin counter, Michelle LaRue. Hello, Michelle. Hello. So you're a research associate at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Minnesota. And what kind of penguins did you count? We counted the uh, the Adelie penguins, so those are the littler ones that kind of look like they're wearing a tuxedo. And what we did was basically used their guano stain to determine the number of breeding pairs that were present over a couple of years around the entire continent. So when I say you're a penguin counter, more specifically, you're a penguin poop counter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so what we do is uh, we use the satel- this high-resolution satellite imagery. Um, it's, it's very high-resolution, so that means that... Um, the, the side of a pixel uh, is, is about the width of a man's shoulder, so it's very high resolution. And what we can do is look at the satellite images, and we can see that pink guano stain that's indicative of an Adelie penguin uh, population. And uh, what we do is measure how, how big it is, and that gives us an idea of how many birds there are. Okay, so wait, one bird will make one stain, or how do you know that one bird's not making three stains? It ends up being about uh, one one breeding pair per square meter, roughly. So if you have about 250,000 square meters, there's about 250,000 uh, breeding pairs there. And is the reason you count the stains and not the penguins, well, other than the fact that it's just so interesting to count guano stains, is it that <laughs> the stains don't move but the penguins do? Well, it's that, and also because Adelie penguins are actually too small to to count individually. So when I did a, a similar study a couple of years ago with emperor penguins, they're actually big enough that we can see them on the on the imagery. You can actually see the individual birds. Mm-hmm. The Adelie penguins are much smaller. When you count the emperor penguins, is that hard? Because, you know, penguins all kind of look the same. Um, that's a good question. So from the technique that we used, uh, the answer is no. It was actually relatively easy. So because we're using this high-resolution imagery, what we do for the emperor penguins, at least, was a, a process called a supervised classification, which basically means that we train the computer to tell the difference between a pixel of penguin versus a pixel of guano and mm-hmm. ice and snow. Um, and then we convert that number of pixels, basically, to the number of birds that are likely there as well. So it's a it's always kind of a computer algorithm in imagery. Because there are all these pictures on the website of you going to Antarctica and going to places where penguins are. Why is that a part of your job? 
so the reason that we have to be there is in order to um, get what we call ground truthing, so we have to validate what we're doing. So if we think that there are 250,000 breeding pairs of Adelie penguins at you know Cape Crozier, and we measure it again in a few years, we still need to be able to say, okay, we think there are this many you know, in 2017, but we should probably also be there in 2017 and count them on the ground to make sure that that is still absolutely the case. And so that's the reason you have to be there, is you have to make sure that what you're doing, um, you know, through the satellite images and through statistics and other computer models um, is accurate. Here's how the Wall Street Journal wrote up your findings. Front page story the other week, by the way. They counted the seabird, considered a bellwether of climate change, and discovered that millions of them are thriving in and around Antarctica, rather than declining as feared due to warming temperatures that altered their habitats in some areas. The Adelie population generally is on the rise. Now, the article mainly played it straight, but I drew an implication, or perhaps one can draw an implication, oh, maybe global warming isn't the problem that was advertised. Does the count say anything about the uh, larger problem of global warming? I would say no, and the reason I say that is because the previous estimates were, you know, were based on very different method of gathering information. Really, the only way that we could say for sure whether it was increasing or or decreasing or any trend really whatsoever is when we compare satellite imagery to satellite imagery. I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of colonies that we found that people just didn't know existed. All right, Michelle Larue, she's a researcher at the University of Minnesota and counts penguins. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. And now the spiel, the telling detail, the stray observation, the single brushstroke that brings the landscape into focus. So often in a news story, a telling detail bores into our brain in a way that a hundred adjectives can't. The news about Malaysian Flight 17, so many words are necessary to voice even the basic questions. And of course, the strategy of cable news goes far beyond what's necessary. But a piece of journalism today used those telling details in a way that I thought was very powerful. A New York Times reporter's front page description, just description of what she saw with a few quotes strewn in, conveyed the horror. No hype, no inflation. In fact, at first I wondered if it was accidentally affecting in the way that sometimes found text can contain a crude poetry. Maybe, I wondered, this article was just strict adherence to a spare AP style that contained a coincidental potency. Phrases like mundane items of daily life covered the grass, toiletries spilled out in overnight bags. Huh. And then I looked at the byline, Sabrina Tavernice. I have been reading her in the Times since the conflict began, and I noticed a month ago she is a very good writer. The phrase that did it for me came in an article on June 1st. Luhansk is Ukraine's easternmost province, fitting snugly along Russia's border like a clenched fist. Then last week, she wrote a finely observed article, sort of a singles mixer between rebel fighters and single women. Actually, quote, some were young and single, but most were middle-aged and ideological. Now, that story had some leeway, but the demands of this one were different. The author described bodies, and she also listed objects strewn around the crash site. So what I did was I went and I highlighted every color that was mentioned. And if you just read the list of objects that had a color attached to them, here's what it would sound like. Black sweater, black bra, gray hair, green grass, purple flowers, white coops, white strips of cloth, white piece of tail, blue shorts, red Nike sneakers, pink children's book, White slippers, blue fuzzy blanket, red suitcase, brown chickens, red t-shirt, white table, red pen. There are no indigos or magentas in there. The power is in the plainness. 
to some, the newspaper version was too gruesome, too graphic. But for me, the descriptions of the images is affecting, not upsetting. The actual images would have been too much. I have even seen on cable news B-roll footage of a collection of Dutch passports and a hand, a gloved hand, maybe from a rebel, who knows? The video wallpaper does not explain, it just presents. But when the hand touches the passports, I feel somehow violated. I think about whose hand it is. Is it a rebel's hand? Maybe it's a rebel aligned with whoever shot down the plane. Now, when journalists speak of the telling detail, it's a little different than when fiction writers do. For fiction writers, the telling detail means a fine description and one that goes to the heart of a character. Flannery O'Connor describing Enoch eating a candy bar as if he had something against it. Joyce Carol Oates, his sideburns gave him a fierce, embarrassed look. Jeffrey Eugenides in Middlesex. As he walked to his car, his head was often tilted back, alert to the phenomena in the trees. That's great writing. It has economy. It has purpose. But they are embellished descriptions as much as observations. One example of the telling detail in a work of fiction that I think really works is from the movie The Hurt Locker. Remember when Jeremy Renner's character returns home for a spell, but surrounded by the fluorescently lit abundance of a supermarket, he loses it? It works on its own, but it also reminded me of this great example of the telling detail in journalism that I heard years ago, and then I actually went back and listened to the story. I heard about it first. It was a story on NPR from the first Gulf War. Scott Simon on NPR, emphasizing the youth of soldiers, mentioned that they were sitting around eating Fruit Loops out of cardboard cups. The mundane and the existential. Once more, mortality in the cereal aisle. I'll tell you what reading this New York Times article and thinking about why it had its power reminded me of. It's pretty incongruous, actually. It got me to thinking about the baseball all-star game from three days ago. How the Fox announcing crew slathered every Hosanna invented on retiring Yankee Derek Jeter. It was a glob of maudlin prolixity. It was so much less memorable than a commercial that Nike produced about Derek Jeter's retirement that lasted 100 seconds and had hardly any words. So you know this Malaysian Air investigation is going to play out over a long time. In a month, it's going to be hard to think of this as something other than a story, a tragic and intriguing story. The victims will become more and more of an abstraction. But right now, before they're even assigned names and identities, they've been made real via blue fuzzy blankets and red Nike sneakers. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, was not entirely satisfied with her statue of the Norse goddess Urpa. Therefore, she returned it for a full refund, no questions asked. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has the first book in several Time Life series. Hey, they're his to keep. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. You could listen to us in, like, say, SoundCloud. We have a Facebook page. Yes, we're the ones with a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash slategist. I'll uh, link to that New York Times story, by the way, and we can comment on it. You can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash slategist and email us at thegist at slate.com. Any unlistened to episodes of The Gist can be returned within 90 business days of your download for an exchange or refund of the purchase price. We do not accept for return any damaged or partially listened to episodes, episodes where Mike sang, any swimwear, any fruits beyond their sell-by date, or any episodes without their original tags, labels, warning, or episodes that don't end with the phrase, thanks for listening.
I'd like to thank you very much for being a great part of Comcast. Have a wonderful day. Uh, can you give me a confirmation number for the cancellation I, of service? I don't have a confirmation number. Well, how do I how do I have confirmation okay. that we've got? Well, you'll receive a final statement in about three weeks. A final statement in three weeks.